What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. And I'm excited, guys. Today, uh, this is the best sounding podcast I've done so far because I finally got a microphone. I got a condenser mic with a spit guard or pop filter or whatever. I got uh, a new Windows application called Audacity. Uh, that I can also record music on, and I finally figured out how to use it, so I'm pumped. So from now on, uh, my podcasts are going to sound a lot more pro, a lot more legit. So I'm very excited about that. Um, <clears throat> hope you guys liked my last episode, Tragedy and Hope. Um, you know, that was that was my case. I was pleading about uh, a lot of the things that... Uh, I have read about and learned about over the years and I've known about for quite some time. And, um, you know, when I, when I finally got to tragedy and hope and, uh, dug into it, I found out that it was everything that I hoped it would be and more, uh, very, very validating. And if you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to it. I'm very, very proud of it. I think that is my masterpiece podcast thus far. Um, yeah, so I really hope you guys enjoyed it, uh, and you are enjoying all of my podcasts. And uh, as always, spread the word. Uh, tell your friends. Share the podcast if you like it. Uh, you can uh, email me at uh, andrewforamerica1984 at gmail.com. Uh, also, our website is my website, rather, uh, politicsandpunkrockpodcast.com. Uh, we're uh, on the blogs. Uh, going to have a lot of the lyrics of the songs that I've been playing. Uh, a lot of the punk rock songs I've been playing on the podcast, as well as uh, some uh, little things that I've written up um, that are fun to kind of read and go through. So, um, Also, I'll include in there some of the stories that I have been reading, some of the excerpts and stuff I'll try to put up there when I have time. Uh, I think Kitty's story is up there now uh, from the Lessons of History episode. Um, so yeah, so that's that. Um Still got the Facebook group up and running. I'm about to start uh, showing up on a lot of other platforms, or uh, a lot of other, um, um, you know, a lot of other companies' websites. Um, I'm going to diversify. <laughs> I'm not going to be so Facebook all the time focused uh, moving forward. So, um, but I'll let you know. I'll let you guys know what's happening, where, what I'm doing, where I'm going. Um, and then real quick before I get to what I wanted to talk about today, uh, a few episodes back I talked about they're coming after Andrew Cuomo, and uh, since I recorded that episode, boy, are they ever. Did I call that or what? <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever figure out what he did uh, and who he pissed off, but I had a feeling they were going to hang that guy, and boy, are they coming after that dude. I'm telling you, you do not want to cross the big club people. <laughs> They'll get you. They'll get you. <laughs> so today, I think in the last episode I talked about, you know, we agreed upon a social contract. Uh, and I kind of touched on what a social contract was and I said that I was going to talk about it in the future. So today, we are going to talk about the social contract and the social contract theorists. And I wanted, you know... I don't want 
I feel like all of you should already know the stuff I'm going to talk about today. But, you know, even for me that, that you know, we all learn this stuff in high school and um, maybe you studied more of it in college, whatever. But um, if you don't know about it or if you've never heard about this, um, you definitely need to pay attention to this episode. If you have, then you're like me and, you know, we all need a little refresher from time to time. Everybody needs a little refresher course, a little, uh, you know, continuing education, if you will. Um, so let's talk about the social contract. What is it? Uh, and then we're going to talk about some of the social contract theorists. Um, I might talk about a few Ben Franklin quotes I like. We'll see where it goes, okay? So here we go. A social contract in political philosophy is an actual or hypothetical compact or agreement between the ruled and their rulers, I like that they use that terminology, defining the rights and duties of each, both the rulers and the rule, the ruled. In primeval times, according to the theory, individuals were born into an anarchic state of nature, which was happy or unhappy according to the particular version. So, according to your point of view. They then, by exercising natural reason, formed a society and subsequently a government by means of a contract among themselves. Okay? So this is pretty much echoing what I've told you guys in the past about uh, in the capitalism episode. If we, if society and civilization falls, we go back to the state of nature and are anarchic, anarchy, an anarchic state of nature, also known as the wild. Uh, I've referred to it as uh, square one, level one in the human experience and the human condition is poverty and hunting and gathering. So that's what this is saying. This is saying that this is a, a hypothetical um, agreement between those that we allow to rule over us and those of us who, um, you know, it's, it is kind of like power of attorney. It's like, you know, um, I know that I am free to do, you know, X, fill in the blank, but I relinquish my my ability to do so because I'm agreeing to a social contract. I'm agreeing not to kill my neighbor. I'm agreeing not to steal from my neighbor. You know, and this is just the philosophical roots of what a social contract is and what a government and a civilization can be built around, okay? Um, In moral and political philosophy, the social contract is a theory or model that originated during the Age of Enlightenment and usually concerns the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. And you guys know me. I love, I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about the level of legitimacy and the level of authority that we sovereign individuals allow the state, our elected officials, to do. That's you know we we allow them to rule over us. We give them power of attorney in certain situations, which is another way of saying we agree to obey the law, and that's why the law is so important. And the the obeying the law and and 
writing, legislating, creating law is very important. Um, you know, I, I forget who said it, but um, somebody once said that, you know, the unnecessary laws weaken the necessary laws. We don't need a lot of laws. You know, dying societies accumulate laws like dying men accumulate remedies. That's another quote. I can't remember who said it. But, you know, this stuff sticks with me. And I just, you know, I, I just, I really wish people understood this stuff more than they seemingly do. Because I feel like nobody does. So I'm going to keep going. Hope you guys enjoy this stuff. I hope you guys are interested. So, um... Social contract arguments typically posit that individuals have consented, either explicitly or tacitly, to surrender some of their freedoms and submit to the authority of the ruler or to the decision of a majority, which is another, which is basically what democracy is, mob rule, uh, rule by the majority. Um, in exchange for protection of their remaining rights or maintenance of a social order, the relation between natural and legal rights is often a topic of, of social contract theory. So yeah, the relation between natural and legal. Uh, I like to think of, about that as moral versus legal rights. Um, and this is often the topic of social contract theory. So that's what a social contract is, basically, people, is that... If you want to live in a civilization and in a society with other people, you all have to agree on a few things. And, you know, it's funny when, remember when uh, uh, last year when they, in Seattle, they tried to do that CHOP or CHAZ or whatever. They tried to create their own community and their own society. And <laughs> uh, it was like a caricature, a caricature of the worst understanding of, you know, what a social contract is. And I don't understand how these people thought they were going to pull this off. I mean, it's such a joke. Uh, it was a joke while I was watching it on the social or on the TV and seeing it in social medias. And it's a joke when you think about it, if it's not based in this stuff and people, I've been, I've been saying this for a long time. <laughs> there are people in the past that have lived lives that have thought about and figured out all the problems that we seem to be facing again today. And the only reason why we some of these problems that we face as a nation exist today is because you stupid idiots never learned or forgot or don't care about or never paid attention to this stuff. And I've said it before, that's why I'm here, because somebody has to tell you people about this. You're never going to understand anything regarding politics and regarding what is important and what is not important with regard to how a civilization and a society can function and thrive and flourish. Social contract theory, people, you got to look it up. You got to get into it, okay? Uh, I'm going to talk about now three of the most famous uh, social contract theorists. Uh, the first is a guy by the name of John Locke. And John Locke, let me read a little thing about John Locke real quick. Um, here we go. So John Locke, uh, born uh, August 29th, 1632, uh, died October 28th, 1704. 
He was an English philosopher and physician, widely regarded as one of the most influential of Enlightenment thinkers, and commonly known as the father of liberalism. Considered one of the first of the British empiricists, following the tradition of Sir Francis Bacon, Locke is equally important to social contract theory as his work greatly affected the development of epistemology and political philosophy. His writings influenced Voltaire, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who we're going to talk about here in a minute, and many Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, as well as the American revolutionaries. His contributions to classical republicanism and liberal theory are reflected in the United States Declaration of Independence. Locke's theory of mind is often cited as the origin of modern conceptions of identity and the self. Figuring prominently in the work of later philosophers such as Rousseau, David Hume, and Immanuel Kant, Locke was the first to define the self through a continuity of consciousness. He postulated that at birth, the mind is a, this is his famous, what he's famous for. He postulated that at birth, the mind is a blank slate, a tabula rasa. And everything that happens to you in your life, you just, just fills in this blank slate. And that's the information base that you have to draw upon uh, when you make decisions moving forward, all based on your experiences. Contrary to Cartesian philosophy based on pre-existing concepts, he maintained, John Locke, that we are born without innate ideas and that knowledge is instead determined only by experience derived from sense perception. A concept now known as empiricism. Uh, demonstrating the ideology of science in his observations whereby something must be capable of being tested repeatedly, which is science, and that nothing is exempt from being disproved, which is truth. Locke stated that whatever I write, is, as soon as I discover it not to be true, my hand shall be the fortest to throw it into the fire. I agree. I really wish all of you thought more like John Locke did. As soon as your research disproves one of your bullshit arguments that the mainstream media probably, you know, repetition, slam, malleted into your head over and over and over again. As soon as you figure out how to get rid of that stuff, your hand should be the forwardest to throw it into the fire. Such as one of uh, one example of Locke's belief in empiricism. So he's saying that morality is is not predetermined. It's determined by you, yourself, your identity, who you become, who you build yourself to be, the story you tell yourself, and the story you portray to others about who you are. That is empiricism. And John Locke also was a big proponent of uh, religious tolerance. Uh, at the time uh, that his treatises were written, the first and second treatise, uh, his famous written works, uh, English politics had undergone decades of upheaval in the wake of the English Civil War. When Dutch monarch William of Orange ascended to the English throne in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, burning questions over the best form of governance for England were prominent in the intelligentsia of the era. That means that they were talking about how to create a better, freer world for everybody, where slavery wasn't a thing, the king wasn't a thing, 
and they needed to figure out how they're going to build this new world. How are we going to allow people to, to have freedom of speech, be able to criticize the government that they elect, be able to legally, morally protect themselves? Second Amendment, right to bear arms. The right to due process, Fourth Amendment. Uh, you know, d- um, the right to, to n- not experiencing illegal search and seizure. That's gone out the window over the years, uh, especially with the Patriot Act. I mean, people, you know, the, these ideas I'm talking to you about are the ideas and the foundations of the philosophical roots that started on the inside first. I keep saying it has to start inside first. And these people were sick of the way the world was running at the time. And they they theorized a better world, a better way, a better path. You know? And it ended up being good, a good thing. Freedom is a great thing, I think most would argue. And, you know, you can make the argument that this is what we're seeing happening in the world today. People are sick of the old and they're trying to build the new. And I'm not saying that that's all good or bad. I'm just saying we need to be very, very, very careful about how we proceed. It has to be from a base of philosophical roots. It can't be from a media-created narrative by the big club. Okay, people... Um, it was a time when, I'm going to keep talking about John Locke now, I'm almost done. Um, it was a time when English, when England grappled with its incremental transition from monarchy to early forms of democracy and the right to vote, uh, where dynastic monarchy and religious theory still held considerable power over the formation of the state. What held considerable power over the formation of the state? early forms of democracy, the transition away from monarchy and feudalism, uh, universal suffrage, the the, the institution of the right to vote for everyone, and religious theory. So there was some religion involved in the perfect formation, or, uh, you know, I I don't like the word perfect, but a, a better a more perfect union they wanted to create, okay? So here we go, moving on. Uh, so this is, uh, I'm, real quick, I'm going to read just a little bit about um, his treatises, uh, and then I'm going to move on to the next social contract theorist, okay? hope this is uh, interesting for you guys. Uh, in the first treatise, uh, Locke proceeds to attack and dissect his prominent contemporary, Robert Filmer, who was broadly in favor of absolute monarchy under the principle of divine right. Divine right uh, means that the gods have bestowed your bloodline, your family to rule, um, which is how it was all over the world for many, many years. Uh, the allusions to the biblical Adam, wherein the monarch can be intimated as a continuation of the first man ever created, are debunked by Locke, who asserts that God never asserted that one man had province to rule over all other human beings. I would tend to agree. Supporting his argument with known history, Locke concludes 
that no king over the centuries had asserted to be the heir of Adam and thereby the rightful ruler of a country. So John Locke believed that no government ever rules over biblical Adam and God and the Christian Jesus, I believe, is what Locke is saying here. He's saying God rules over all governments that the people elect. Okay? In the second treatise, Locke turns to a different topic, that of the state of nature. He discusses how humanity may have behaved prior to the establishment of formal societies. I've talked about this before, hunter-gatherer societies. And concludes that humanity, even without an established government in place, had never been truly lawless even when freedom was at its farthest extent. In arguing against the tyranny of absolute monarchy while acknowledging the advantages of humanity's freedom in its natural, ungoverned state, Locke arrives at his conclusion. A democratically elected government whereby humans are accorded freedoms but must conform to the rule of law is the most advantageous type of government to which humans can aspire. Write that down. Lauded as a classic of political philosophy, the treatises by Locke are a common requirement in various educational courses concerning political science and philosophy to this day. Boy, I sure hope they are. I have a hard time believing that. Maybe when this was written 30 years ago, who knows? I would love to know. Parents, anybody that knows, if they're really still teaching this stuff in school, please let me know. I would love to know. Um... So yeah, lauded as a classic of political philosophy. The treatises by Locke are a common requirement in, yep, I already said that. While steeped in the historical realities of the late 17th century, the arguments Locke composes for governance favorable to the people and their country's development were immensely influential on political theory during and after the Enlightenment. So there you go, people. That's John Locke. Very important social contract theorist. Okay. Moving on, let's talk about Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes of Malmesbury, uh, born uh, April 5th, 1588, died December 4th, 1679, was another English philosopher, considered to be one of the founders of modern political philosophy. Hobbes is best known for his 1651 book, Leviathan, which I highly recommend you people read, in which he expounds... Uh, and influential formulation of a social contract theory. In addition to political philosophy, Hobbes contributed to a diverse array of other fields, including history, jurisprudence, geometry, physics, uh, theology, and ethics, as well as philosophy in general. Uh, Leviathan is a book written by Thomas Hobbes. Uh, its name derives from the biblical Leviathan. So here's another guy whose philosophy was rooted in religion. Just saying. The work concerns the structure of society and legitimate government and is regarded as one of the earliest and most influential examples of social contract theory. Leviathan ranks as a classic Western work on statescraft comparable to Machiavelli's The Prince. Written during the English Civil War, again, 
Leviathan argues for a social contract and rule by an absolute sovereign. So what that absolute sovereign is, is debatable, clearly. Hobbes wrote that civil war in the brute situation of a state of nature, the war of all against all, quote unquote, as he puts it, could only be avoided by strong, undivided government. Okay? Undivided. Keyword. Um... So that's a little bit about Thomas Hobbes. And in a minute, I'm going to read some quotes by these guys too. But I just want to give you a little intro if you guys have never heard of these names before. God help us if you've never heard these names before. But if you haven't, like I said, that's why I'm here, people. That's why I'm here. Um, Okay, so the last social contract theorist I'm going to talk about today is Jean-Jacques Rousseau who lived from June 28, 1712 to my birthday, July 2nd, 1778. <laughs> I was born 200 years later. <laughs> uh, uh, was a Genevan philosopher, writer, and composer. His political philosophy influenced the progress of the Enlightenment through Europe, as well as aspects of the French Revolution and the development of modern political, economic, and educational thought. His discourse in inequality and the social contract that's the book that of his that you should read the social contract are cornerstones in modern political and social thought rousseau's sentimental uh no he wrote sentimental novels uh yeah rousseau befriended his okay i don't care about this part let's get to the important stuff here we go the social contract author these are the famous opening words of a treatise that has not ceased to stir vigorous debate since its first publication in 1762. Rejecting the view that anyone has a natural right to wield authority over others, Rousseau argues instead for a pact, a social contract, that should exist between all the citizens of a state and that should be the source of sovereign power. Okay? The social contract is the source of social power power in Rousseau's view. And that idea, friends, will be the thought process that begins what the Constitution of the United States is going to include and proclaim. Okay? The Constitution becomes the social contract, the written word of the social contract that we the people agree to with regard to the necessary evil that is government and how much we will allow that government to intrude in our personal lives. Okay? Very important stuff. You gotta learn this stuff, people. From this fundamental premise, he goes on to consider issues of liberty and law, freedom and justice, arriving at a view of society that has seemed to some a blueprint for totalitarianism, Hmm. and to others a declaration of democratic principles. You know what I love about that line? This is a a deep philosophical thought for me, but this reminds me of a few things. Uh, I personally believe that democratic principles uh, 
without the rule of law leads to totalitarianism. And I don't know if that's what Rousseau's view is, but that's definitely what my view is. And that also reminds me of what Karl Marx once said. He said that capitalism is nothing but a stepping stone on the road to socialism. So, you know, (laughs) with slow usurpations over time, people, you can see, even in the philosophical roots of what a social contract is and what kind of government... Uh, we're going to have, you know, a socialist government, a, a totalitarian uh, dictatorship, um, a democratic republic. You know, the, the differences between those are, are are very, very important and rooted in principle. And that's why the principles are what matters most. That's what makes a social contract a contract. It's a it's principles written down that are to be adhered to. That are not to be infringed upon by government. Okay? All right. So let's read some quotes from these men. And here, let's go find some of my favorites because let's go to John Locke. John Locke is famous for saying, Reading furnishes the mind only with materials of knowledge. It is the thinking that makes what we read ours. That's I like that. That's a nice way of saying that everybody reads the same thing differently. And we all interpret things differently. That's why we have to have conversations, people, where we define our terms. Definitions are very important, especially in a world where the mainstream media is going to change the meaning of words and then drill it in your head. Okay? I have always thought the actions of men the best interpreters of their thoughts. Duh. New opinions are usually suspected and usually opposed without any other reason but because they are not common. Okay, people? Common sense ain't too common. Know what I'm saying? Common sense, by the way. There's another good book you should go read. Um, We are like chameleons. We take our hue and our color of our moral character from those who are around us. (laughs) That's John Locke saying that we're social creatures and we're going to vibe off of each other. We're going to learn from each other. You know, John Locke said that revolt is the right of the people. We should be able to revolt against a, a, a tyrannical government. To love truth for truth's sake is the principal part of human perfection in this world and the seed plot of all other virtues. Okay, people, that's important. I completely agree with him. Truth is of the utmost importance. Um... Yeah, those are some of my faves. I, there's a lot that uh, I've. <laughs> Fortitude is the garden support of all other virtues. I mean, you know, these guys are talking about what I've been telling you guys about. You gotta, you know, if you want to, de- if you want to make fruitful uh, use of your freedom, you gotta develop yourself. Okay. Uh, 
I did not come up with that. Okay, here's a few Thomas Hobbes uh, quotes for you. I like this one. Hell is truth seen too late. <laughs> Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? That's one of the worst feelings in the world, learning the truth far too late. For such is the nature of man, that however they may acknowledge many others to be more witty or more eloquent or more learned, yet they will hardly believe there be many so wise as themselves, for they see their own wit at hand and other men's at a distance. That's Thomas Hobbes telling you that ego prevents you from seeing things clearly, from seeing things as they are. Uh, this is Thomas Hobbes' famous quote about the natural state, the anarchic state of nature. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah, so there's a few fun quotes from Thomas Hobbes. I'm sure you guys have heard some of these before. Uh, I feel like I'm getting long-winded about this, so I'm going to move on here. I'll read you a few real quick about uh, from Rousseau that I liked. I prefer liberty with danger than peace with slavery. <laughs> I didn't realize that that was Rousseau that said that. Uh, I say something very similar to that quite some time, uh, quite often. And those of you that know me know what I'm about to say. I prefer dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery. That quote, that line right there, people, is the entire socialism versus capitalism, uh, constitutional republic versus dictatorship uh, conversation. And it's a spectrum. Where do you fall on the spectrum? I prefer dangerous freedom, meaning freedom means you have to be responsible and self-sufficient which is going to be inherently dangerous. <clears throat> Some of us, that's how we are. That's the life that we want to live. Being free is more important than being in a peaceful society where we are slaves to the state. That's the spectrum, people. Complete government, uh, government control versus little to no government control. And everything in between is debatable. And that's why our government and our rule of law and our democratic republic is so important. It is so important for us to adhere to principles, founding principles. Yes, a lot of these guys were probably slave owners. Yes, they lived during a time when slavery was still normal, commonplace, status quo. Okay? You have to put this stuff into the historical context of the time that it occurred. I've said it a million times. This is my favorite Jean-Jacques Rousseau quote, and then I'm going to move on. Man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. You ever feel like that, people? You ever feel like, hey, you know, why is it that I live in a free country, a free society, 
But sometimes I wake up and I look at my life and I feel like I'm a slave. I feel like I am in chains. Gotta think about this stuff, people. This stuff is important. Okay, one more Rousseau quote. The first person who, having enclosed a plot of land, took it into his head to say, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him. Was that, that was the true founder of civil society. What crimes, wars, murders, what miseries and horrors would the human race have been spared had someone pulled up the stakes or filled in the ditch and cried out to his fellow man, do not listen to this imposter. You are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to all and the earth to no one. I love that. All right, let's move on. Um, oh, excuse me. I'm going to talk about Ben Franklin. The first American, as he's called. He has some quotes that I love. You have probably seen me post this one many times before. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. If you are willing to give up your freedom, people, to let some elected government make you safe? Do you want them to protect you? Then you don't deserve freedom or safety is what Benjamin Franklin is saying here. And I couldn't agree more, people. If you are not capable of, me, of developing yourself, then you are not capable of making fruitful use of your freedom. Nor do you deserve to be free or to be safe. That is a little controversial, I'm sure. A lot of you probably hear me saying that and you're like, wow, this guy is an asshole. But think about it, people. Do you do you deserve? You know, is it gullible, uh, naive of you to think that if you give power of attorney to some group of people to protect you and to give you goodies and to keep you safe, do you deserve it? What if they turn on you? How can you trust them? Have you ever thought about that? What is it that you people see in government? And these rich assholes who continue to get arrested for conspiracy, for crimes, the Andrew Cuomo's of the world, the Richard Nixon's, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And you people still just don't, it's like you pretend that none of this stuff has ever happened. You pretend that people never came before us that were very intelligent and had the best intentions of the whole in mind. You just act like that never happened. And it pisses me off when I hear you progressives out there trying to destroy our history, trying to pretend it was never there. 
You don't want to learn from it. You don't want to grow. You think you have the moral high ground. It's just pathetic and disgusting. Your face should be in a book reading this stuff so you can know what the hell you're talking about. Benjamin Franklin, all the property that is necessary to a man for the conservation of the individual is his natural right, which none can justly deprive him of. Our cause is the cause of all mankind. We are fighting for their liberty in defending our own. These people, say what you will about them, they laid the foundations for what is the free society, or what was, rather, the free society that we enjoyed in this country for many, many years. But some of us think that those days are over. And my question to you people is, do they have to be over? Are we giving up? Are we throwing, it, are we throwing in the towel? Or are we going to learn this stuff? Are we going to get back to basics, get back to founding principles, remember who we are, remember where we came from? Or are we going to let this big club completely, completely take over? History is written by the victors, right? Are we going to let them win? Are we going to let them completely, you know, burn all these books out of existence? As if none of this stuff ever happened? Boy, I sure hope not. I sure hope not, man. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. I forget who said it, but... Any nation that prefers disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. This constitution that they are writing can only end in despotism when the people shall become so corrupted as to need despotic government being incapable incapable of any other form. What he's saying right there, Benjamin Franklin is telling you Americans, is that without the Constitution, without a declaration of how it is, how it's going to be, If we don't stand by those principles and we allow a despotic government to come in, we become incapable of any other form of government. It can only end in despotism. You know, th- th- that famous that famous phrase, Benjamin Franklin walks out of the Continental Congress or whatever it was, where they're, where they're coming up with this stuff. I forget. One of you will probably tell me. Woman comes up to him. Hey, Ben Franklin, what have you given us here today? You know what he said? A republic, madam. If you can keep it. You guys think we're keeping it? Or you guys think we're flushing it down the toilet?
Got to learn this stuff, people. Got to learn this stuff. All right, so enough about the social contract theorists and the social contract. I just wanted to kind of go over that stuff today. Uh, you know, we all need a refresher course from time to time. It's always good to, to get back to, you know, they, they say that, you know, when you're training others, you're really, you know, retraining yourself at the same time. It's good. It's beneficial. It's good for all of us. So I hope you guys weren't too bored. I hope you guys uh, found some value in uh, this topic and uh, the subject matter today. And uh, we are going to move on. Um, let's see. What else did I want to talk about today? Is that it? Uh, yeah. Man, this might be a short episode, guys. Just a little refresher course on the social, uh, the social contract theorists. Um, you know... I was trying to look up what Founding Father said, uh, slow usurpations over time. And I keep ending up at the Declaration of Independence. And I can't find the part in the Declaration of Independence where it says, uh, beware of, you know, slow usurpations of the government over time, intruding in your life, taking more and more and more of your personal freedom, slowly but surely. So if any of you guys want to email me and let me know (laughs) who said that, is James Madison... Was it uh, John Hancock? Who said it? God, I can't... Man, help me out, man. All right, well, this has been episode 16 of the Politics and Punk Rock podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys liked uh, the subject matter today. Hope you guys uh, like and are enjoying the new sound, the new digs. I actually got real computer software I got sound effects I can use and stuff now. Uh, I finally figured it all out. Got a microphone. Uh, you guys aren't going to hear my dogs jingling around and barking in the background anymore, hopefully. Um, yeah, I hope you guys are liking this podcast. I'm going to keep it moving. I'm going to keep it going down the track. Um, what's coming up in the future? I'm going to talk about Manly P. Hall pretty soon. I'm going to talk about the founding of the United States. Uh, We kind of talked about that today with the social contract theorists, but there's another perspective about the founding of this country that's a little bit more sinister, a little bit more esoteric, if you will. There are people working in secret and in concert trying to get agendas accomplished. They're using covet means, like JFK once said, Secret societies and secrecy or are repugnant. Go listen to the speech JFK uh, JFK gave before, you know, he they popped him. Uh, my buddy Sam uh, uh, plays it in one of his episodes, of, according to Sam. I don't know if I want to play it. I kind of, you know, I'm going to leave that for homework for you guys. I highly recommend you go listen to JFK's speech. In fact, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm going to go find it, and in a minute, I'm going to play JFK's final speech to you. And that's how I'm going to end this podcast today. And I really hope you guys find value in this. And right now, I really hope you guys listen to John F. Kennedy. Listen very closely and very carefully to what this man is about to say to you. Ladies and gentlemen, 
The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program. For from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence and the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, Without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, 
not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. All right. So... That was John F. Kennedy, people, in... That was the last speech he gave before they popped him. I mean, can you think of any reason why that might be? I mean, he was blowing the whistle on the big club, people. He was blowing the whistle on everything I've been telling you guys since episode one. John F. Kennedy was my favorite Democrat, man. I tell you what, that guy, he was the last real president. He was the closest to a real president this country has ever had because he was honest and he intended to be transparent. And they weren't having that. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. We are inherently and historically opposed to secret societies secret oaths, and secret proceedings. We are opposed around the world by a monolithic, ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, Member communist socialist subversion KGB guy on intimidation instead of free choice on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. That's straight out of the John Perkins book, people. The jackals, guerrillas by night. They try to do it quietly, and if they can't do it quietly, then they end up doing it loudly. They send the poor <laughs> to fight the war. The presidents don't fight the war, do they? <laughs> it is a system which, is which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, intelligence, keyword, economic, scientific, and political operations, boy. They gotcha by the balls, people. They got us by the balls. You, me, everyone. They got us by the balls, people. Pause this podcast. 
rewind it, listen to JFK's speech again, or just go search it online, JFK Secret Society speech. You can get the five-minute, 20-something second version, or you can get the full 19-minute speech. I urge you all to listen to it. Everything that the founders of this nation warned us about has started to happen. Everything that we were warned about is coming true. It's coming to life. Our worst fears are happening today, right now, in March of the year 2021. I'm not making this stuff up. This isn't conspiracy theory. There's nothing new in this world, people, except the history you do not know. So I highly suggest and I highly recommend that you know it, that you learn it. For you, for me, for all of us, people, what are we doing? The revolution starts inside first. You have to care. You have to be curious. You have to be motivated. You have to be courageous. You have to be skeptical. And you have to be calculated. You have to develop yourself. Develop your capacities. Most importantly, develop your capacity for love. Decide for yourself on that spectrum from dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery. Ask yourself, where do I fall on that spectrum? How much of my life do I want the government that I elect? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't even vote. Who knows? But the point is, is that somebody is getting elected to rule over your life and to make decisions for the whole. And you should have a vested interest in that, people. And if you don't, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. You're ruining it for the rest of us that care. You're ruining it for the rest of us that work hard, that pay attention, that show up to class on time, that pay our debts to ourselves and to society and to our creditors. There needs to be more. There are more good people in this world than there are good people actually doing anything about it. And if you see yourself as a good person, if you see yourself on the side of good rather than evil, then I highly suggest you get involved. You start participating in this experiment we call America. And for the love of God, or whatever God it is you pray to, start getting it through your head that there is a concerted effort by the big club to take this whole thing over. Not only the United States, but the world. And if you're still in denial of that, if your cognitive dissonance is still preventing you from seeing that, I'm not going to get mad. I'm just going to keep chipping away, chipping away, piece by piece, slow usurpations over time into your brain. Here I come with more facts and evidence, more historical tales, more stories, more first-hand people's accounts of their own experiences, etc., etc., etc. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you all 
next time on the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast.